You're going, wait a minute, I'm a saint? Really? <clears throat> Are you a saint? Yeah. Some of you aren't sure. You're wondering why the person next to you said yes, right? <laughs> well, we're going to talk about this this morning. We're going to talk about sainthood and uh, try to clear the air on the, on the matter and, and see exactly what the Word of God teaches about saints and what it takes to be one. Uh, seems that the further you get away from the biblical gospel, the less is understood about the term saint. And so we want to make sure we understand the word and how it applies to us, not only to um, understand the word, but to determine if we're a saint or not. I have produced an outline for you. It's in the bulletin, and I hope you'll follow along there. There's some <clears throat> points that I want to make that come directly from our passage today, which is uh, Philippians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn there with me. Philippians 4, verses 20 through 23. And I want to talk to you this morning about saints, and that you'll understand why as soon as I read the passage for you. But how would you define the term saint? Is a saint someone who is a really good person? They're super good. They're, they're always doing right. They're perfect. They're always putting other people's first. They annoy everybody around them because they're so good. Uh, is that your definition? Maybe your definition would include some Catholic church ideas of sainthood. Saints are those whose pictures are etched in the stained glass windows in large churches. And they're up there because they've They've done something great, their virtue, their merit, devotion, religious achievement of some kind. So they're saints, obviously. There's one right there, and there's another over there, and they're etched in the stained glass windows. The way to get up there is to perform some miracle or to do something great or dramatic. Walk on water. We'll put you up there. You know, maybe that's how you think of sainthood. But the New Testament, particularly Paul, writes that saint. A saint is anyone who has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's description of sainthood. Saint, in fact, is Paul's favorite name for Christians. If you're a Christian in Paul's mind, you're a saint. He uses that term, saint, 40 times in his letters in the New Testament. A saint isn't a superhero, but someone who has simply put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. So if you've repented of your sin, if you've run to Christ for forgiveness and mercy and grace then Paul would call you a saint. The Bible would refer to you as a saint. And if you're a saint, you've been separated from sin and united to Jesus Christ. Paul concludes this letter in Philippians chapter 4, verses 20 through 23, by calling a few different people saints. I want to read it for you. Follow along with me. Starting in verse 20 of Philippians 4. To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So here what we see are four different groups of saints that Paul was referring to. I want to just mention them to you. The first is the saints in Philippi. Notice that in verse 21. Greet every saint in Jesus Christ. Those who are reading this letter, if you're a saint, you're greeted by those over here who are writing this letter. Secondly, Paul refers to the Christian leaders who were with him in jail when this was written as saints. Look at the next phrase. The brothers who were with me greet you. 
Those are all who were right with him in that cell as he was writing this letter. The third group is the larger company of believers, of Christians, saints, who lived in Rome. Look at the next phrase there, verse 22. All the saints greet you. And then the fourth category is in the next phrase at the end of verse 22, especially those in Caesar's household, those who made up Caesar's family, those who's made up Caesar's household, the, the servants, the, the lawyers, the soldiers, anybody who was involved in the imperial court was included in that last group of saints. So this is, this is how Paul thought of these people. They had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, so they became saints. They were in the category of saints. Paul wrote, look there in verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. In Paul's mind, in order to be a saint, you need to be in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you're not a saint. In Paul's mind or anybody else's mind in the New Testament that wrote, this is an important reality. Being a saint requires you to be in Christ. Remember, we're not talking about people who are really good, really neat, really pious, that is not the biblical definition of saint. It's not those who don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. No, it's those who put their trust in Christ are the New Testament saints. It's the way Paul talked about them. Sinners simply saved by grace and united to Christ. That was it. This relationship with Jesus Christ, of course, is unique to Christianity. No other world religions associates those who follow their founders as Christianity does. Christianity is the only world religion that claims its followers are actually united to their founder. We're not, we not only believe in Jesus, but if we're Christians, if we're saints, we're actually united to Jesus in a unique and important way. You remember Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 11? Let me remind you of some of the truths there. Those verses tell us that we are united to Jesus in some important ways. First of all, we're united in his death, or we're united to him in his death. So his death is our death. Why is that important, Christian? Why is that important, saint, that you be united to Christ's death? Well, if you know Romans 6.23, you know why it's important. For the wages of sin is death. In order to have your sins forgiven, you got to take care of the sin problem. And how do you take care of the sin problem according to Romans 6.23? Death. So in order to do this, you either have to give your own life or be united to someone who's given his. And that is Jesus Christ. All right? So the reason your sins are forgiven is you're united to Christ who died for your sins. That's the first important thing we learn in Romans chapter 6. Next, we learn that his victory over sin, in other words, his lifelong sinlessness, that sinlessness, that perfection, because we are united to Christ, is our perfection. So God the Father, the judge of the universe, sees us through the perfection of Christ. If we are in Christ, when Jesus walks forward, when we walk forward, the Father sees Jesus in us. That's an important reality. Why? Because Jesus said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I've never met a perfect person, but I've, lot of, I've met a lot of people who are in Christ, and his perfection is their perfection. That's an important part of salvation also, isn't it? To have not only your sins forgiven, but to have that perfect life that's required by God. 
Those two things we have because we are in Christ. And then next, it keeps getting better. It says that we, Romans 6 says that we are united to Christ in his resurrection. This is our hope, right? This is, this is what we look forward to someday because we're in Christ and Jesus came out of the grave. We one day will join him and be resurrected ourselves. Why? Because we're in Christ. Not only are we in him in his death, in him in his victory over sin, in him in his resurrection, we are in him in his eternity. We are going to be in glory forever with Christ because we are in Christ. No one else gets to enjoy the benefits of being in Christ except the saint. Are you in Christ? If you are, you're a saint. It's not because you're pious, good, and all these other things that the world may attach to that word. It's simply this. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that connects you to Jesus. You are now in him. This is what God does in the, in the regeneration process. This idea of being in Christ, that phrase, those two words, in Christ, is one of Paul's favorite phrases in all of his letters. So favorite that he uses it 85 times. 85 times he uses that phrase, in Christ. It's an important phrase for us saints, very important. Secondly, let's look at the life of saints. How ought this union with Christ ought to affect our lives? We've just seen that the saint begins at conversion, begins at regeneration. That's how you become a saint. But now I want to ask you, how ought that to impact your daily living? If, in fact, you are in union with Christ, does it affect how you think and live? If not, let's back the train up. If so, how? Let's, let's review it. <clears throat> First of all, most of us understand what baptism is. It's going under some water. It's something that, that Jesus did, something that he calls each of us to do who, who are united to him. And, if, and when someone comes to faith, this is the first thing that usually follows. They grow enough to learn, oh, I need to be baptized like Jesus. So they get up in front of a church and they get dunked in some water. We call it baptism. This, by the way, this baptism is a drama that God has given to the church that demonstrates this union with Christ that's so critical that I'm talking about this morning. That thing that makes you saints is that union with Christ. Baptism demonstrates that union. You, you, you can remember, maybe you don't think about that actively when you're watching someone get baptized. You ought to, but maybe you don't. Uh, it's much more than just getting wet on Sunday morning if you're getting baptized or whenever you get baptized. It's much more than that. It's a demonstration of our union with Christ. It reminds all of us who are watching we are united to Christ just like this person who's being baptized. They're demonstrating it for me. Let me review it for you. So what happens? A person gets up, they, they present a profession of faith. We acknowledge that profession and we say, based on your profession of faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we dunk them. What happens in the dunking? They demonstrate. It's a drama of the death and burial of Jesus Christ. We are in, we are in union with him in his death, in his burial, and... If it's a good pastor, they bring that person out of the water and connect it to the resurrection. We're not only demonstrating the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. And then we get out of the water, people clap, we walk away, what? 
demonstrating a commitment to living the life of Christ, right? Isn't that what we say baptism is? That's what scripture says it is. It's simply a demonstration of our union with Christ. So this is critical to understand. Being called a saint is a great reminder to us that we have been set apart in Christ for Christ. Our lives ought to reflect that reality in three, or actually four areas. Okay? The first is this, the character of the saint. This union with Christ ought to reflect in our character. Are you a saint? It ought to be evident, is the point. Okay? Let's look at this. The character of the saint is found, really, in the definition of the word saint. Let me tell you what the word saint or how the word saint is translated to give you an idea of its meaning. It's translated in the, new t- in the English versions as set apart. Have you heard that? That's how the word saint is translated many times in the Bible. One who is set apart. Another translation is sanctified ones and the third is holy ones. Let's take each of these to help us see what the character of a saint ought to be. First of all, the set-apart ones. You've heard that to be holy, to be a saint, means you're set apart. You know where that term came from? It was when God told Moses to make holy or to set apart the instruments in the temple, in the tabernacle. In other words, the tongs, the gold tongs that were used in the altar of incense or the, or the altar, the burnt altar, the burnt brazen altar, those tongs could only be used on the brazen altar. No one was allowed to take those tongs and go outside the temple and pull weeds with them. Those tongs were set aside for the altar, period. They could be used nowhere else, which is why it was such a horrendous thing when enemies came and took all the implements and used them however they wanted. So the first part is people are, the, the people, saints, reflect this word set apart. In the same way that the tongs are used for the altar, the Christian is used for God's glory in life. And only God's glory. It's wrong to use your life any other way if you're a saint. In the same way it was wrong to use the tongs to pull weeds. The second idea here is that is the translation of sanctified ones. We know what sanctification means, right? It's that process of becoming like Jesus. That's the word that is translated from the word saints, or hagios in Greek. It's sanctified ones. What does this mean? It means that every true saint of God, the one who's put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ, is in the process of becoming like Jesus. That's what saints are about. That's what they're doing. That's the transformation process. Slowly but surely becoming like Jesus, sanctified ones. And then finally, holy ones. This word hagios is also translated holy ones, or saint is translated holy ones. And by the way, this is the literal translation of what we read here in verse 21 and 22. Saint there literally could be translated holy one. So let me read it literally for you. Greet every holy one in Christ Jesus. 
All the holy ones, verse 22, greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The holy ones. Now what might that bring to your mind concerning our character? We ought to be holy versus unholy, <laughs> right? Versus worldly, versus selfish, versus all those things that we're being sanctified from. Holy versus unholy, the holy ones. So Jesus Christ has transferred us unholy ones, those who remained in darkness, who were born in darkness, he transferred them into the kingdom of his dear son, in the kingdom of light, the holy ones. From darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, from being alienated to being adopted as sons. That's what happens when Jesus Christ has mercy and grace on you. Saints are described all over the New Testament, particularly in this wonderful little letter of Philippians. Saints are those who, because of our participation in the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit has come in, done a work, and caused us to become more like Jesus, they are now in the family of God. They're saints. Instead of preferring ourselves, what does a saint do? Well, if, if, if this process is real, if the sainthood is genuine, then instead of preferring ourselves, we prefer others. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Instead of looking out for my own interests, I look out for yours. Instead of defending my rights, I defend yours. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is part of my life now. He has changed me. I've become holy. I am now a saint. This is why we, saints at Sun Valley, of all people, should be able to navigate these, these difficult times we are in. It seems like what's more damaging, at least in the church, uh, from this whole pandemic is not, the, is not COVID-19, but our response to COVID-19. It seems like the problem is not the disease, but our reaction to one another about the disease. And so we, of all people, should be able to navigate pandemic guidelines. Why? Because we are saints. That's why. We're different. We have different priorities. We have a different leader. And we follow him. There has been way too much consternation about the, all this pandemic stuff. If we humbly count ourselves other uh, or others more significant than ourselves, we should be able to understand people in our church who view our current circumstances differently than we do. So many times, and I can tell you, I can tell you this, many churches are collapsing because they can't agree on whether or not to wear masks. Can you believe that? That's what's going on. We of all people should be able to navigate this stuff. We should be able to mask up for those who are vulnerable or anxious about it. And on the other hand, we should also be able to extend grace to those who are unable to do so. It's okay. We, of all people, we are saints. Instead of thinking in the worst in those who disagree with our opinions, what, what does Paul say? Think the best in those who disagree with you. Romans, Paul said to the Roman church, Accept one another's differences. And he wasn't talking about race and ethnicity. He was talking about opinions. 
accept one another. Can you do that? Sun Valley Church Saints. Jesus said this, the greatest characteristic of any saint is what? Love, right? John 13, 34, and 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The number one characteristic of any saint, according to Jesus and Paul and all the disciples, is love. Let me read for you the New Testament definition of love in the context of this pandemic discussion. Love does not insist on its own way. Right there, we stop there, it solves our problem. All right, but let's continue just for the sake of fun. And I know you guys are having all sorts of fun right now. <clears throat> it is not irritable. You know, looking out at people who disagree with me or agree with me may irritate me. The mask itself irritates me, all right? But love isn't irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is how we ought to treat each other. This is a great opportunity. I used to tell my soccer players that I coached, one of the, I had to memorize 13 statements. One of them was, this is an opportunity, not a threat. This, friends, this pandemic, this, this cultural crisis we're going through on top of the pandemic is an opportunity of monumental proportions. It's not a threat in the least to us, but it is an amazing opportunity. And how ought saints to take advantage of it? Secondly, the fellowship of the saints. Character of the saints, fellowship of the saints. How ought our relationship to one another be viewed? How ought you to view your relationship with other Christians in the room or around the world? The fellowship of the saints. Well, Paul made sure that Philippians heard the greetings from all those around him. Paul used the word every there. Do you look at that, verse 21? Every saint, not all the saints. Why did he use that word? Many times in other places in his letters, he says, greet all the saints. Why here every? It's a different word, has a different meaning. Paul used the word every instead of all because he wanted to make sure that each and every saint in the Philippian church felt Paul's love and affection. He wanted each and every one of them to know that they were individually valued, that their role was significant and important. Not all of you. All of you have a good day. Or you have a good day. You, you, you. If I come out and name each of you, it makes a difference, doesn't it? That's what Paul was doing. Each of you are important. I want you to each be greeted by the Apostle Paul. He wanted them to feel his love and affection. He wanted to know that they were part of a grand plan of God. He wanted each of them to see that they had an important role. Greet each of the saints. Every one of us who are saints have an important part to play. We are each gospel partners. 
Just as in a business, every partner must play their role in order for that business to be successful, we as gospel partners must play our specific roles for the kingdom to move forward, the kingdom of God. Notice that Paul treats everybody in, the, in this prison cell he is in, he treats them all the same. And a lot of them were there, like I said earlier, watching Paul sign off on this letter. He treats all those important people in his cell important. He doesn't name the superstars, and by the way, the room was full of superstars. It would be like name your top five uh, Christian leaders in the world today were in the room. You and I would have named them, right? And by the way, uh, R.C. Sproul's here with me, and uh, in fact, here's an Instagram picture of me and R.C., right? Isn't that how we would have pulled that one? Yeah, all of us. Paul, to make a point, <laughs> about what fellowship in the world of sainthood is about, says, the brothers in the room greet you. He could have said, Timothy, this hero in the New Testament church, Timothy greets you. Epaphroditus, that superstar from Philippi, greets you. Uh, Tychicus, who was the carrier, that famous carrier of the letter to Philemon, the Ephesus church and the Colossian church. He's here. He greets you. Aristarchus, my long-term companion. Uh, maybe Onesimus, Luke, and Mark, who potentially probably were in the room. They greet you. No, he just says, the brothers greet you. These were all prominent men who were with Paul, but he calls them brothers, partners in the gospel, fellow saints. Nobody's above, nobody's below. We're equal in the family of God. These all send greetings. This is the fellowship of the saints. There's no elevation of one over the other. There's mutual humility, love, acceptance, affection, realization of each person's role, important role in the family of God, the cause of Christ. This is the nature of fellowship. The word fellowship doesn't show up in the English Standard Version translation in the book of Philippians. It's not there. But the Greek word from which fellowship is translated shows up five very important times in the book of Philippians. And I want to review those for you. By the word, by the way, the, the word that, that is translated um, fellowship is also translated partnership and partakers and sharers. That word is a familiar word to you. You all know it. Koinonia. Remember that word? That's the word in view. That word is translated all over the New Testament as fellowship and partnership and partakers and sharing. But the English Standard Translation translates them all partakers or participation. I want to review them quickly for you. Turn back to the first chapter of Philippians. And I'm making a point here, so bear with me. Turn back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. I want you to see how Paul thinks of fellowship. And it's, it's going to make my point here concerning what saints should be doing, our conduct. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, partnership in the great task of getting the gospel out. Keep that in mind. That's how Paul used the word koinonia. Secondly, look at verse 7, same chapter, chapter 1, verse 7. 
It is right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers. That, there's the word. If you want to circle it, you can. You are all partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul used this word fellowship in connection with others suffering for the sake of the gospel. Suffering so the gospel can go forth. Third, the third use of this word is over in chapter 2, verse 1. Look how Paul uses it there. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, that's where Paul is identifying the saint. The reason you're a saint is because you have participated with the Holy Spirit. It, it is through whom we are baptized into one body. You are a saint because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That gets you in the door. All right? That's the third, now the fourth. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There it is. Share. Koinonia. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the gospel. Fifth and final, down to chapter 4, verse 15. Went over this a few weeks ago. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me except you. Partnership about what? What were they in partnership over or in? The gospel. Our fellowship is supposed to be and designed to be around the gospel. Fellowship means partnership in one thing, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we should be formed and shaped by. It's not about eating food together in the commons or having coffee together at Starbucks. You can certainly fellowship during those events, but those are not fellowship. The New Testament speaks of fellowship. It, it speaks of our union in Christ and our commitment to him for the sake of the gospel. We gather here in fellowship so that we can go out and spread the gospel. Paul meant his readers to understand that their fellowship was a partnership around the furtherance, the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We gather to worship and pray and encourage and motivate one another towards the greater and greater participation in the kingdom of God. Our intent on providing a Sunday morning worship service or a small group or Sunday school class is to encourage you to be more about the gospel and the kingdom of God. We're not here just to scratch your back where it itches. We're not here to make you feel good about yourselves. We're here to encourage you, to motivate you, to challenge you, to exhort you, to, be, to make much of Jesus in all of your life, at home, at work, at school. That's why we meet. That is the center of our fellowship. We, we show you this in our Sunday morning services regularly. Our, 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 I'm not, I don't want you to get the idea that we can't have just basic human relationships around common interests. 
Like, is it okay to go play catch with somebody who likes to play catch? Is it okay to go fly fishing or shopping with somebody that likes to do those things? Sure it is, but that's not fellowship, all right? That's friendship, which is great, and you should have those. But if that friend is a saint and you're a saint, you should be able to accomplish all those things in the context of being partners in the gospel. Not sure how you would shop for the cause of Christ, but we'll work on it. I'm sure there's some way to do that. See, the life of a saint includes our character. It includes our fellowship. And now I want you to see how it includes how we worship. How we worship here on Sunday morning. How we worship in our small groups. How we worship individually. How we worship in our families. The life of saints includes our character, fellowship, and worship. And I think it's important that we as saints know whom we worship and why that worship is important. Look at verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul begins his benediction here with this doxology. It is the conclusion to all that Paul has said about what it means to be a joyful gospel partner. He has just come to the end of his letter to these dear Philippian saints, encouraging them to be joyful partners in the gospel, to be joyful in their lives, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says, if we will do these things, friends, it will bring glory to our God and Father, the Lord Jesus. It's the conclusion to all he said. Living the faithful gospel partner life will bring glory to God. It is itself an act of worship. Worship is just not sitting in this room singing songs and listening to a sermon. It is that. But it also is how you live in front of your neighbor. It's also how you treat your children and your spouse. It's also how hard you work at work. One of the primary activities of any saint is worship. We were designed by God to be worshipers. We will worship something no matter what. Our hope and goal is that we worship as saints the God who made us, our God and Father. This is natural to someone who's been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. It's a natural response to the glory of God, which is why on Sunday mornings we present to you right off the top some aspect of God's goodness and glory. Why? So that you will respond in worship. So that your heart will become engaged with the glories of Christ in that moment. So you'll get out of yourself, forget the world, and come running into the throne room of your Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what worship is. And like I said, we all worship. It's how we were designed. If you're big into cars and a cherried out Ford Mustang, 66 Mustang, drive by, what do you do? You don't shrug. You go, ah! Or if you're into natural beauty and you drive up Chinook Pass and you come around the corner and there Mount Rainier is in all of its glory, you don't go, mm. No, you, wow! In fact, most of the time you take pictures and you put it on Instagram and then you take a picture of yourself. That you say, I was there at Mount Rainier. Look how beautiful. That's worship. And so when we come on Sunday morning and we present to you the glories of God in Christ Jesus, the natural response of a saint is, wow. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 20, Paul identified God the Father as our God. He is our God, the one and only God. The God that all of Scripture scripture argues is supreme above all gods. And gods by small g. Gods that you make up. Gods that the world makes up. He is supreme above all those things. He is our God. And Jesus taught in John chapter 4 verse 23 that he came to earth to gather worshipers for that God. That's why he came. Jesus said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God's looking for people. He is building saints so that they will worship him. Worship him, our God. And of course, the only way to worship God is to know God, right? (laughs) You can't worship something you don't know. Many people try. Many try to worship a God of their own creation. You know what we call that? Idolatry. You cannot, you don't have the freedom, the right to make up your own God and then worship that God. Well, you do actually, but it's called idolatry. We have to know whom we're worshiping. Our God and Father. The God who's revealed himself on the pages of Scripture from beginning to end. That God is the one we worship. A.W. Tozer, in his great little book that I'd recommend to you, The Knowledge of the Holy, said this. It's a longer quote, so stay with me. Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at the bottom, uh, is at bottom a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. This is what's going on if you don't understand who God is. If you make up your own God, which many, by the way, churches do. We are not at liberty to do that. Always this God, small g, will conform to the image of the one who created it. And it will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of mind from which it emerges. A God begotten in the shadows of a fallen heart will quite naturally be no likeness or no true likeness of the true God. You or thou thoughtest that I was altogether such as one as yourself? In other words, you thought I was like you? God asks through the psalmist, back that up. You you and I cannot create a supreme being in our own minds and say that's God. Our only way to get to our knowledge of God is through him revealing himself to us here. That's it. Where was I? Um, You thought I was just like you. Surely this must be a serious affront to the Most High God before whom cherubim and seraphim continually do cry, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. Let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized people are therefore free from it. Baloney is what he's saying. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Hello. How serious are we getting here? 
Friends, the worship of saints is to the one true God of heaven who has revealed himself on the pages of scripture, period. And you hear people all the time, even publicly say, that's not how I view God. <laughs> My God isn't like that. Really? God is the one revealed in scripture. So here, as we're looking at what it means to be a saint, looking at their character, their fellowship, and their worship, I've added one more thing that there's no place in your notes for except a blank, so you're going to have to add this one, uh, letter D, the focus of saints. The focus of saints. And it's seen in verse 22, the second half of verse 22. What ought the focus of saints be? What is the focus of true saints? Here it is, 22b, especially those of Caesar's household. Please explain, right? <laughs> let, me, let me explain this to you because it is so important and I think so encouraging. The people that Paul was referring to, Caesar's household, who sent their greetings to the Christians in Philippi, were actually related to Caesar's household in some way, either biologically related or related to his household by way of service or uh, soldiering or something, some way that these people who had become Christians, who had become saints, were now sending their greetings back to the saints in Philippi. And you're thinking, why is this so important? Okay, there's some Romans that are Christians. Well, most of these, listen closely, most of these people, if not all of these people who would become Christians in Caesar's household did so while Paul was in prison in Caesar's household. He led them to Christ and they were leading each other to Christ because Paul was in prison in Rome in Caesar's household. They heard the gospel because Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem and sent to Rome. Talk about God's providence, and you got a problem with getting a cold, right? God had Paul arrested in Jerusalem so that Caesar's household would be in heaven one day. What a joy this phrase must have been to the Philippian readers. And all the saints greet you in Rome, especially those of Caesar's household. Are you kidding me? Paul, people in your prison, people in, that serve in Caesar's court are believers? Yes. Sun Valley Church, can you imagine hearing that kind of greeting from Eli, from Josh Ryan? Dwight hires. All the saints here greet you. Hold on. What? Back up. What do you mean? There's more saints now there where we sent you? There's, there's more saints amongst the Othello Mystic? There's more saints in the Baja Mexico? Wait. The Philippians must have thought, 
This is the reason we sent you. This is the reason we've prayed. This is the reason we have sacrificed so much. To hear those words. They had played a part. God has had used them for his glory, for the saving of souls. And Sun Valley Church, God will have used us when we hear those words. In the same way that he used the Philippians. And we will feel exactly how they felt. As joyful gospel partners, their sacrifice had borne fruit. This was the focus of theirs from the beginning. This is why they sent Paul. Friends, our challenge is to keep the main thing the main thing and not be derailed by petty things, which is so easy to do especially in these days. Our response to the guidelines of Jay Inslee is not the main thing. It's not even on the list. Let's not allow petty things to derail us from the main thing. Saints, We must get, which is the last point in your outline, the grace of Christ to the lost. They must hear the gospel. They can't think that Christianity is a group of people who argue about whether or not to paint the walls brown or blue. Whether or not it's important that we wear masks above the nose or below the nose or not at all. Keep the main thing the main thing. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, friends, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the main thing revealed in, this, in the Gospels. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul concluded all of his letters. The grace of God or the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Why? Because you need not, you, don't, you only need his grace for salvation. You need it for sanctification. You, you not only need the, the grace of the Lord Jesus to become a saint, but to live as a saint. You not only need the grace of the Lord Jesus to enter the kingdom of God, but to enter glory. You must have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus is the most important resource we have. This is what the world is yearning for and don't even know it, is the grace of the Lord Jesus. Oh, friends, 
even though we're rebels in our natural state who don't submit to God, who don't serve God, in fact, who run from him, who disobey him, who ignore him, who offend him, the grace of God in Christ Jesus pushes through all of that. As you live out the grace of Christ, as you live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in your neighborhood, in your home, you're not waiting to hear from people who ought to make good Christians. None of us make good Christians, all right? We're looking for people who are receptive to the offer of grace in Jesus Christ. And for them to be receptive, they have to hear it. The grace of Jesus Christ be with you. Despite our sinfulness and rebellion against God, his mercy and grace has transformed you, saint. I'm certain it can transform your neighbor. Gospel partners at Sun Valley Church, be joyful. We are now governed by grace. We're guided by grace. We're sustained by grace. We're sanctified by grace. We will one day be in glory because of grace. This is central to Paul's letter. So let's be joyful, gospel-centered, grace-driven, mission-minded saints. Pray with me.